Calvary Chapel Reading, welcome to the Bible teaching ministry of our senior pastor, Jim Jarrett. Here's Pastor Jim with today's study, designed to help us grow in the Word. Amen. You may be seated. When we as believers watch what's going on in the world, As we observe events unfolding, we recognize that things are not falling apart, but rather they're falling into place as God providentially is working to bring about his plan and purpose. And we know that he has a plan and purpose. We read about it in his word. And as believers, we we understand the world is rapidly moving toward a globalist agenda. Forces in the world right now, which of course are under the sway of the wicked one, are working to bring about a one-world economy, a one-world government, which we know will eventually be led by one-world ruler, a man who will rise to power from within the nations that once made up the old Roman Empire, the nations of Western Europe, and the Bible refers to this man as the Antichrist. And he will be a world-class statesman and leader, and when he comes on the scene, he will come as a, as a man of peace who seemingly has the answers to all of the world's problems. This final ruler is a man who no doubt is demon-possessed, powerfully so, more so than any other man ever, and he will be the world's final ruler. He will be a wicked, evil, powerful dictator who will come to power at the beginning of the tribulation. And as we look at the situation in the world today, we see the stage being set for such a leader to come on the scene. It didn't just happen yesterday or last week or last month or last year or the year before. Uh, The world has been moving toward this for decades. Well, I guess in one sense we could say the world has been moving toward this since Christ returned to heaven. But before Christ steps or before the Antichrist steps on the world stage, the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and he's going to take all church-age believers out of this world in a prophetic event referred to as the rapture of the church. Now, when will the rapture occur? Well, the exact time of the rapture is not precisely revealed in Scripture. It's only inferred. And down through history, there are those who have predicted the time of the rapture, but obviously up to this point, every prediction has failed, and that's why we're all here this morning, right? And here's just a small sample of failed rapture predictions from the the recent past. Edgar Wisenant, a former NASA engineer and Bible student, predicted the rapture would occur in 1988, sometime between September 11th and September 13th, and he published two books about this. The first was titled, 88 Reasons Why the Rapture Will Be in 1988, and and the second title was On Borrowed Time. And after this failed uh, to come true, he revised his prediction to October 3rd, which obviously didn't come true either. In 2011, radio host and preacher Hale Camping predicted that the rapture would happen that year on May 21st. It didn't, and that wasn't the first time he had made a failed prediction. He also uh, made a prediction in 1994 that failed. David Mead, a a self-described numerologist and Bible student, predicted the rapture would take place on April 23rd, 2018. He predicted the same thing less than a year earlier. But none of these came to pass because date setting is an exercise in futility because no man knows the exact date of the rapture. Christ gave us a good idea of what we should look for before the coming of the rapture, but but he didn't give us the calendar date. But over and over again in Scripture, we are told to watch for the appearing of the Lord because he could appear at any moment. And with all that's happened over the last couple of years, starting with the pandemic and shutdowns and government overreach, now with inflation, 
food shortages, famines, wars, and rumors of wars, there seems to be a renewed interest and discussion concerning the rapture of the church. And that being the case this morning, before we get back into James, Lord willing, next week to begin to finish it up, I wanted to take time to look with you at the rapture of the church. And so turn in your Bibles, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, this is one of the classic passages in the Bible on the rapture. Now this may be new to some of you and, and to, to others, it may be, this may be old news. But I hope and pray the Lord will shed light on these truths and help us to understand and encourage us together this morning. So I'm going to ask you to stand as I read 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 verses 13 through 18. 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 18, if you'll follow along as I begin reading now in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13. But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others do who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore... Encourage one another with these words. And may the Lord bless uh, the reading of his word and our time together in it. You may be seated. Let me set the context of, of these verses that we're looking at this morning. After spending the first three chapters in 1 Thessalonians dealing with personal comments, looking back on his visit to Thessalonica and, and, event, and the events which followed, and after having defending, him, defending himself against the accusations of his critics, in chapter 4, Paul began to deal with doctrinal issues and issues of practical Christian living, telling us how we're to live the Christian life. In verses 1 and 2, Paul gave a general exhortation. And this general exhortation was to walk or to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. And following his general exhortation, Paul gave some specific instruction. In verses 3 to 8, he said, Living to please God involves abstaining from sexual immorality. In verses 9 to 12, Paul said, Living to please God also involves abounding in love, leading a quiet life, minding your own business, and, and working with your own hands. And then in the final verses of chapter 4, verses 13 through 18, Paul begins to deal with an issue that was troubling some of the Thessalonian believers. Although Paul was only in Thessalonica for a short time, he made sure these new believers, and they were relatively new believers, he made sure they understood end-time events such as the return of Christ to gather believers and to take them to be with themselves. In chapter 1, verses 9 and 10, Paul said the Thessalonian Christians had turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So the Thessalonian believers were living in anticipation of Christ's return, which they thought could be in their lifetime. And they also knew about the day of the Lord, a time of coming judgment of the ungodly. We know this from chapter 5, verses 1 to 3. But there were some things that, that were troubling the Thessalonians. First, because they were experiencing persecution, some of them were afraid that they had actually missed the rapture and were now in the day of the Lord, which they obviously had not expected to experience. But the persecution they were experiencing had nothing to do with the tribulation or the day of the Lord, as Paul explained in chapter 3. It was merely the persecution that all believers can expect in this life and that Paul had actually warned the Thessalonians about. Secondly, and their greatest concern, had to do with their believing friends and loved ones who had already died. You know, what was going to happen to them? 
Would they receive their resurrection bodies at the rapture or would they have to wait until after the tribulation? Would they miss the rapture altogether? I mean, were they going to miss the whole show? Would their death hinder or handicap them in any way? Would, would they be at a disadvantage? You know, would they, would they somehow be considered lesser saints? Or were they not as loved as the rest who, who would live to the rapture? And so this whole issue caused the Thessalonians, some of the Thessalonians to grieve over their loved ones who had died. And they were worried and upset and, and confused and fearful. And so Paul writes to ease their sorrow and to comfort them, as verse 18 shows us. He didn't, he didn't want them to be uninformed about the Christians who had died. He did not want them to sorrow as unbelievers who have no hope. No, Paul wanted them to understand and experience the glory of the hope that they have in Christ for the future. And so in verse 14, he gave the foundation for that hope, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Christ's death and resurrection are, are the proof of his coming again, just as Jesus promised in John 14. And since the Thessalonians believe that Christ died and rose from the dead, they should likewise believe that when Christ comes for his church, those who sleep in Jesus, in other words, those who died having a relationship with Christ, are going to be there. They're, they're going to come with the Lord. They're not going to miss anything because they're coming with Christ. And so the Thessalonians were not to sorrow and grieve for those who had died or, or, or for themselves should they die. Because neither those believers who had died nor those who were, who were living or are living will be left behind, excluded, or disadvantaged in any way. And now as we come to verse 15, Paul begins to explain what's going to take place when the Lord comes and brings with him those who died in Christ. And what Paul writes here is, is more pastoral than it is theological. Paul's intent was not to give an exhaustive, very detailed explanation of the rapture and, and end-time prophetic events, but rather his intent was to comfort troubled, grieving, sorrowing hearts. But in doing so, Paul reveals more details about the rapture of the church than can be found in any other portion of Scripture. Now, I think it would be helpful if I took a few moments and spoke about the rapture before we actually get into the text. Often when the subject of the rapture comes up, there are those who say, well, I don't believe in the rapture. Okay, why not? Well, because the word is not in the Bible. Okay. The word Trinity is not in the Bible. We believe in the Trinity, don't we? The word millennium is not in the Bible. We believe in the millennium. I mean, it's true you will not find the word rapture in the Bible unless, of course, you're reading a Latin translation. But the teaching is there. You see, the, the Greek word translated caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17 is harpazo. It's used some 13 times in the New Testament. Four times it's translated catch up. Three times it is translated to take by force. Two times to catch away, two times to pluck, one time to catch, and another time to pull. And here in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, it means to catch up and away. It means to seize. It means to carry off by force. It's the idea of a sudden irresistible force that sweeps us up, gathering us together to the Lord in the future. When Jerome translated the Bible from Greek to Latin in the Latin Vulgate, the word he used for the Greek word harpazo, which is translated caught up in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, is the Latin word raptus or rapturo, from which we get our English word rapture. So rapture is a biblical term that has come to us through the Latin translation of 1 Thessalonians 4.17. The Weist expanded Greek translation of 1 Thessalonians 4.17 reads this way. We shall be snatched away forcibly in masses of saints, having the appearance of clouds for a welcome meeting with the Lord in the lower atmosphere. That describes the rapture. The true church, all true believers throughout the world shall be snatched away in a moment to be with the Lord. You say, okay, well, where do we find the raptures spoken about in Scripture? 
Well, I'm glad you asked. The rapture is spoken of in scriptures in places, in the scriptures in places like John 14, where Jesus made reference to it when he said in John 14, verses 1 to 3, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. The Apostle Paul spoke of it in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 51 and 52, where he said this, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And a mystery is something in the Old Testament that was not revealed, but is now made known. And so Paul said, I'll tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. It's a great theme for the nursery, right? (laughs) We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. I know it was a bad joke, but I couldn't couldn't resist. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. You'll never read that verse the same again. (laughs) We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. But by far the, the passage of Scripture that gives us the most detail about the rapture is here in our text this morning in verse uh, verses 15 through 17. So although you won't find the, the word rapture in the English Bible, the teaching is certainly there. And so the rapture then is when the Lord comes for his church and we're caught away to meet him in the air. We are translated from the physical realm to the spiritual realm. And according to 1 Corinthians 15, in the, this will be done in the twinkling of an eye. So in the twinkling of an eye, Christians from all over the world will be gone, caught up to be with the Lord. And it's important for us not to confuse the rapture of the church with the second coming of Christ. I mean, some people do. But the Bible describes the rapture and second coming as different events that occur at different times. The rapture occurs before the great tribulation. In the rapture, the Lord Jesus comes for his church, but he doesn't descend all the way to the earth. We ascend to meet him in the air. The rapture is sudden, unannounced, unpredictable, and it could happen at any time. On the other hand, the second coming of the Lord, at the second coming of the Lord, the heavens open, the Lord Jesus descends from heaven to the earth with his saints as described in Matthew 24 and Revelation 19, and this will be seen by the entire world. Jesus spoke of it in Matthew 24 where he said in verses 29 and 30, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall fall from heaven and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And we know that when Jesus' uh, second coming occurs, the Lord will descend to Mount the Mount of Olives Uh, just outside of Jerusalem. In Revelation chapter 1, we read, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him. That speaks of the second coming. And the Apostle John gives a description of Christ's second coming in Revelation chapter 19, verses 11 through 16. And there John writes, Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So the rapture is the return of Christ in the air for his church. In the second coming, Christ returns to the earth with the church at the end of the tribulation. In one, he comes for his bride, and in the other, in the second coming, he comes with his bride. In the rapture, the Lord comes for his bride, 
takes her to the fa- his father's house, which is in heaven. And this was a Jewish custom, and it fits with his promise in John 14. Because it is at this time that the church, the bride of Christ, is presented to the groom, the Lord Jesus, and we have the marriage supper of the Lamb. And this is followed by a time of examination, the judgment or the bema seat of Christ, and the giving of rewards for our service to Christ while we were upon the earth. But at the second coming, when the church returns with Christ in Revelation 19.8, she is already clothed in fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And these represent Uh, rewards for the good works of believers and will make up the wedding garments that will glorify Christ throughout his millennial reign. Another illustration of the differences between the two events is in 1 Thessalonians 4 where the Lord comes and the bride is caught up to meet him in the air with no mention at all of a return to earth or a judgment of the earth. But at the second coming, as described in Matthew 24 and Revelation 19, Christ comes to earth, and every eye, everyone on earth will see his coming, and the judgment of the earth will follow. And so you have the rapture, the catching away of the church just before the seven-year tribulation period, and then the second coming at the end of the tribulation, uh, which will then begin the 1,000-year millennial reign of Christ. Now, there are different views on the rapture. Some believe the church will go halfway through the tribulation. Others believe uh, the church will go through the entire tribulation. Uh, But I don't see that in the scriptures. Rather, I believe the church will not go through the tribulation. You say, well, why is that? Well, number one, the theme of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are the church. And the word church is mentioned 19 times in chapters 1, 2, and 3 of Revelation. But beginning in chapter 4, there is not even a mention of the church until you get to Revelation 22, verse 16. Why is that? Because the church is not on earth during the tribulation period described in Revelation chapter 6, verse 18. You know, Revelation chapter 4, verse 1 begins after these Things. After these things, what things? The things of the church. And then the church is caught away and will return with Christ at the end of the tribulation. So it's safe to assume that the Lord removes the church from the earth, relocates it to heaven by means of the rapture. If the church were on earth during the time of the tribulation, there certainly would be a mention of it in the scriptures. And there is not. Secondly, Revelation chapter 19 does not mention a rapture, even though that is where a post-tribulational rapture, if true, would occur. So one can safely conclude that the rapture will have already occurred. Number three, the sequence of events at Christ's second coming following the tribulation demands a pre-tribulational rapture. And I say that because when you compare rapture passages with second coming passages, there is strong evidence that the rapture could not be post-tribulational or at the, or meaning at the end of the tribulation. Because at the rapture, Christ gathers his own. But at the second coming, angels gather the elect, according to Matthew 24. At the rapture, resurrection is prominent. But at the second coming, scripture does not mention the resurrection. At the rapture, Christ comes to reward believers, but at the second coming, Christ comes to judge the earth. At the rapture, the Lord snatches away true believers from the earth, but at the second coming, he takes away unbelievers in judgment. At the rapture, unbelievers remain on the earth, whereas at the second coming, believers remain on the earth. At the rapture, Scripture does not mention the establishment of Christ's millennial kingdom. But at his second coming, Christ sets up his eternal kingdom on earth. At the rapture, believers will receive glorified bodies, whereas at the second coming, no one will receive glorified bodies. And there are, there are several uh, prophetic types that, that seem to affirm the concept of deliverance from tribulation. Take Enoch, for example. 
Enoch was a prophet to the Gentiles who was raptured out of the world before God poured out his wrath in the, in the great flood of Noah's time. Enoch walked with God and then, what? He was not. God took him away. God took him out of the world before he poured out his wrath in the great flood of Noah's time. Enoch then appears to be a type of the Gentile church that will be taken out of the world before God pours out his wrath again. If so, then Noah and his family are a type of the Jewish remnant that will be protected through the tribulation. Another Old Testament symbolic type which points toward a pre-tribulation rapture is the experience of Lot and his family. They were delivered out of Sodom and Gomorrah before the cities were destroyed. And the Apostle Paul alludes to both of these examples in his second epistle where he states that if God spared Noah and Lot, then, he sure, then surely the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Another beautiful prophetic type, and I've, and I've already alluded to it, is, is found in the Jewish wedding traditions of Jesus' time. After the betrothal period, the groom would return to his father's house to prepare a wedding chamber for his bride. And he would return for his bride at an unexpected moment. And so the bride had to be constantly ready, constantly watching and waiting. And when the, bride, when the bridegroom returned, he would take his bride back to his father's house, to the chamber that he had prepared. He and his wife would then be sealed in the chamber for seven days. And when they emerged, a great wedding feast would be celebrated. And likewise, Jesus has returned to heaven to prepare a place for his bride, the church. And when he returns for his bride, he will take her to his father's heavenly home. And here, uh, he will remain with his bride for seven years, the the time during the, the tribulation. And the period will end with the marriage supper of the Lamb, which is described in Revelation 19. Thus, the seven days in the wedding chamber point prophetically to the seven years that Jesus and his bride will remain in heaven during the tribulation. Next, if the church were going to go through the tribulation period, don't you believe that God would give us instruction about it in the New Testament? Don't you think he would give us instruction about how we're to live during that time? But there are no such instructions. The New Testament does not warn church-age believers of impending tribulation such as is experienced in the seven-year tribulation period. It does warn of error and false prophets against ungodly living and, and present tribulation. But there is no instruction to the church about going through the seven-year tribulation in the New Testament. Why? When we can only conclude that the church won't be here. Beginning in chapter 4 of Revelation, there's not even a mention of the church until you get to Revelation 22. I've already mentioned that. Seven times in chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation, the Spirit says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. But that stops at the end of chapter 3. And again, the church is not mentioned again until chapter 22 because the church is in heaven. There is no mention of the church on earth during the tribulation period. So someone is going to say, and some do say, Well, why in the world should the church in the last generation deserve to escape the great tribulation? And the answer to that is very simple. That Christians in other in every other generation have escaped the great tribulation. That's the answer. So there's no reason to single out the last generation to go through it. Well, what about the Christians who have suffered persecution and tribulation? Well, that's a good question. What about them? Well, the answer to that is the church in every age has suffered satanic tribulation and persecution. In fact, it's estimated now, we just read this the other night in our men's study, it's estimated that today 400 believers are killed every day worldwide for their faith. The church in every age has suffered satanic tribulation and persecution, but that is entirely different from what is going to take place during the tribulation period, the time of Jacob's trouble, the Bible calls it. The sixth reason for a pre-tribulational rapture is we have the Lord Jesus' word on it. 
When Jesus promised true believers in Revelation chapter 3, verse 10, I will keep you from the hour of trial. Not from trial, but from the hour of trial. That is a clear reference to the tribulation. So he says, I will keep you from the hour of trial that is coming upon the whole world to try those who dwell upon the earth. Those who dwell upon the earth, uh, believers are never referred to in that way. And so here Christ himself promises that all true believers will be kept from the tribulation. And this promise extends far beyond the church in Philadelphia. It includes all faithful believers throughout the history of the church. And only a pre-tribulational rapture explains how this can happen. Before the Lord pours out his divine wrath upon the unbelieving world in the time known as the Great Tribulation, described in detail in Revelation chapter 6 through 19, his church is going to be taken out of the world. We are going to be caught up, taken away in the rapture. And why do I believe that? Well, the seventh reason, Christians are not appointed to wrath. We are not appointed to wrath. In in Romans chapter 5, verse 9, Paul wrote, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from what? The wrath of God. Then in 1 Thessalonians 5, 9, For God has not destined us for wrath but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul states in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from, guess what? The wrath to come. 1 Thessalonians 5.9 says, Christians are not appointed to wrath, but to obtain salvation. Romans 5.9 says, We are saved from the wrath of God. 1 Thessalonians 1.10 says that we are delivered from the wrath to come. And I think it dishonors and offends the spirit of grace and God himself to say that as his child, I am one day going to be subject to his divine wrath. That's what the cross was all about. Jesus bore the wrath of God for me and for you. He bore God's wrath upon the cross. He was my substitute, dying in my place. He paid the penalty for my sin. I am complete in Christ, robed in the very righteousness of Christ. I mean, we are His body, the bride of Christ. And we cannot be any more righteous or complete, positionally speaking, in Jesus. And so what in the world good would it do for Christ to reign wrath down upon his bride before he took her home. The entire seven-year tribulation period is nothing but God's divine wrath. That's what the seven years is all about. All of it. But we as believers are not appointed to wrath. Yes, we may suffer severe tribulation, persecution, and even death because of satanic persecution. But as believers, we will never suffer God's wrath. That issue again was settled forever at the cross. And Christ is going to take us out of the world before the great tribulation begins. So the rapture must be pre-tribulational before the wrath of God described again in Revelation 6-19. through Loved ones, the church is not going to go through the seven-year tribulation. So we don't need to spend our time looking for the Antichrist because we will probably be gone before he comes into power. As Christians, rather, we should be looking for the Lord Jesus Christ to catch us away to himself. I mean, that's the blessed hope of the church. Right? Well, when is the rapture going to occur? (laughs) When's Jesus returning for his church? Well, that's the question most often asked, isn't it? I don't know. I have no idea. But if I were to say today that next Sunday I was going to announce the date of the return of Christ, the place would probably be packed. But if I ever say that, you should be very worried. In fact, the elders should just come and drag me right out of the pulpit. (laughs) But rest assured, I'm not going to announce the date. I mean, people who have set dates and who have written books are, are going against the very word of God. 
Because the Bible says that no man knows the day or the hour. But I do believe that nothing is keeping Christ from returning at this very moment for his church. You know, are there prophecies that must be fulfilled before the rapture? No. No, it could happen at any time. There are signs which indicate the second coming is getting close. I mean, there are signs leading up to the second coming. And since the second coming is after the rapture, how close is the rapture? I mean, Jesus could come before I finish teaching this morning. You say, well, does that mean you're going to go really long this morning? (laughs) Well, I hope not. We'll see. It merely means that the Lord could come five minutes from now, 30 minutes, an hour from now, or he could come 10, 20, 30 years from now. And theologians call this the imminent return of Christ, which simply means it could happen at any time. The word imminent refers to an event that is hanging overhead, so to speak. An event that is ready to occur or could occur at any moment. While other things may happen before the imminent event, nothing else must happen before the event occurs. If something else must occur first, then that event is not imminent. And further, no specific amount of time is specified regarding when the event will happen. It may be soon or it may not be. Because if a certain amount of time must take place before the event occurs, then it's not imminent. An imminent event, like Christ's return for his church, could happen soon. It might not, but it could. We don't know when it'll be. But as we watch world events, as we watch the rise of globalism and and one world thinking and politics and and religion and, and finance and so forth, as we see all of these things happening, the closer Christ returned for his church must be. And so Christ's return and, and the rapture of the church are imminent, and yet no man knows when it will be. The rapture is sudden, unannounced, and could happen at any time. Let me ask you something. Does that thought ever enter your mind throughout the day? That the Lord could come at any moment? Any of you remember Andre Crouch, the gospel singer from years ago? Anybody remember Andre Crouch? I'm showing my age. Yeah, a few of the older ones. Yeah, like myself. Yeah, Andre Crouch. He had a song. It was, it was uh, titled, It Won't Be Long. You know, it won't be long. I'm not going to sing it. It won't be long till we'll be leaving here. Barry Maguire, another one that most of you won't remember. But Barry Maguire had a song, you know, this could be the day. And it could be the day. And we should think often about his coming. In fact, we should live in light of his coming. It helps keep an eternal perspective on things. I mean, it's entirely possible that some of us here this morning will not die, but will be changed. We will be translated from this state into the heavenly state in the twinkling of an eye in the rapture. That's very possible. Then again, it may not happen. I mean, there's no single text of Scripture that makes the entire case for the pre-tribulation rapture. But when we consider all the New Testament evidence, what you have is a very compelling case for the pre-tribulational rapture position, which answers far more questions and solves far more problems than any other rapture position. Now, I know there are different views on this, which we're not going to take the time to discuss. And it doesn't mean uh, you're a heretic if you disagree. I would just say you're inaccurate, but you're not a heretic. (laughs) Back now to 1 Thessalonians. In verses 15 to 17, we have God's divine revelation concerning this event we call the rapture. And Paul begins by giving us the authority for his explanation of what's going to take place when the Lord comes and brings with him those who sleep in Jesus. It's as if Paul was answering those who were wondering, well, how do we know believers who have died are going to come back with Jesus? How do we know this? To which he answers, notice verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord 
Paul's explanation begins with the words, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord. In the promise and explanation of these verses were not wishful thinking. They were not a figment of Paul's imagination. This was a word from the Lord. And when Paul says that, when he says, For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, he meant one of two things. Either these were words that Jesus spoke, and if he did, we have no record of them in the gospel. Or secondly, he means that God was speaking through him the word of the Lord so that what Paul said regarding the rapture and its details was new revelation from God, part of the mystery truths given to the Apostle Paul. And it's best to see it as the latter, as a direct revelation to the church through the Apostle Paul. Because again, as Paul uh, said in chapter, uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse Uh, 51, where he was beginning a, a discussion about the rapture, he said, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And again, a mystery is something hidden that is now revealed. And Paul is saying, I'm now going to reveal something to you that has been hidden. Look at 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 2. Paul says, For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. The Thessalonians knew a lot about the second coming of Christ and the day of the Lord. That's judgment. So, I mean, they didn't need to be taught about the day of the Lord, but they were confused about this event called the rapture. So Paul reveals something here that up to this point had been a mystery, and, and it came to him by a word from the Lord, by direct revelation, which he now unfolds to the Thessalonians. And so as one man said, you see, the rapture does not rest upon the shaky foundation of whimsical theological speculation, but on the sure foundation of the death, resurrection, and revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. What Paul was giving the Thessalonians was divine revelation. Look at verse 15. For this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. There are only two kinds of people who participate in the rapture. Christians who are alive and left until the coming of the Lord, and Christians who have died. It's a very simple contrast. That's all that Paul is speaking about here. Christians who are alive and Christians who have died. And you see, that was the Thessalonians' big concern. What happens to the Christians who've already died? And so concerning the rapture, Paul divided believers into two classes, the living and the dead. He said, let me tell you about each of them. First of all, we who are alive, meaning Christians living at the time of the rapture. Please, please notice the word we. That is a generic term, meaning we believers who are alive at that time. Paul doesn't say they, as if he's pushing it off to a, a future generation. He could say we and be comfortable about it because it might be in his lifetime. Why? Because it's imminent. It was imminent. Paul demonstrates here what a proper anticipation and expectation for the Lord's return is. He believed it could happen in his lifetime, and yet on the other hand, he also believed that he could die before Christ came. Paul looked and and hoped for the return of the Lord in his day, but he wasn't afraid of death because either way, he knew that he was going to be with the Lord. In Paul's attitude, we really see what should characterize every believer who knows and trusts in the truth, knows and trusts in the truths and the promises of God's Word. I mean, we should live, look for, and long for the coming of the Lord, which, being imminent, could come in our day. But on the other hand, we should never be afraid of death, which may very well come first, because either way, uh, we're going to be with the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. And that's the way the church has always lived, with expectation and anticipation that it could come in my lifetime. And Paul using the word, Paul's using the word we because at the time he was one of the ones alive and remaining. And if Jesus had come, he would have been in that group. And so he conveys to the Thessalonians his own heart of anticipation. And what does he say then? We who are alive when the Lord comes for his own, Look what he says, look at verse 15. We who are alive will not precede those who have fallen asleep. Will not precede. It means to go before, to gain an advantage over those who have died. And that's what they wanted to hear. 
Believers who are alive on the earth when Jesus comes aren't going to have an advantage over the ones who have died. That's Paul's point. The living will not go before the dead. They will not gain an advantage. And that sums up all the Thessalonians' questions. You know, would the dead be lesser saints? Would they miss the rapture? Answer, no. All church-age saints, alive and dead, when Jesus comes, will be at the rapture, and nobody's going to be left out. Nobody. Death before the return of the Lord will in no way hinder or negatively affect one's part in the return of Christ for his bride. And that brings us now to verses 16 and 17, and, and Paul here lays out the plan of the rapture. Look at verse 16. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And so here Paul goes through the details. The, the first thing that happens is the Lord himself. And I want to stop at that point. Christ's return is personal. It's not an angel, not a lot of angels. It's not a substitute. You know, the Lord himself. He is personally coming for his bride. He is the bridegroom coming to take his bride. In the second coming, it's the angels who go out and gather the elect. In the second coming, it is Christ himself. He is personally coming for his bride. And the Lord himself will descend. Well, from where? What does it say? The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Well, why is that? Well, because that's where he's been, Right? <laughs> That's where he's been. When Jesus ascended, he went to the right hand of the Father. In Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, it's very clear that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And so he comes from the right hand of the Father in heaven where he's been our advocate to intercede on our behalf during the church age. And so he's there and, and he's waiting to descend. And that's precisely what he's going to do. Notice how he does it in the rest of verse 16. He's going to descend with a cry of command. The word command is a military noun that occurs only here in the New Testament. It was used as an order, a, a command, specifically a stimulating cry by which a signal is given to men, to rowers by the master of a ship or to soldiers by a commander. And so Paul is telling us the Lord comes down with a command and this fulfills the pledge of John 14 where Jesus said, I will come again and take you to myself that where I am you may be also. And then notice what he says then. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, and then notice, with the voice of an archangel. The only mention of an archangel is here in the, in the New Testament, is here and in Jude chapter 9. And in Jude 9, the archangel is Michael. And so it could be that Michael the archangel is associated somehow with the rapture. And as Jesus comes down with a loud voice and makes this command for resurrection, Michael is there as well, adding his voice, perhaps echoing the Lord's cry of command. And then along with the shout and the voice of an archangel is what? Look back at the verse. The sound of the trumpet of God. The trumpet of God. There is a trumpet at the rapture. And of course, in the Old Testament, trumpets were used in Israel for all kinds of things. They were sounded at Israel's feasts, celebrations, convocations, and judgments. They were used to sound an alarm for war. They were used any time it was necessary to get a crowd together or to make a public announcement or proclamation. In Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 to 19, a trumpet called the people out of the camp to meet with God. It was a trumpet of assembly that called them out of the camp. In Zephaniah chapter 1 verse 16 and then in Zechariah chapter 9 verse 14, a trumpet was used as a signal of the Lord's coming to rescue his people from wicked oppression. It was a deliverance trumpet. And it seems that the trumpet at the rapture is an assembly trumpet and, and a deliverance trumpet. When the trumpet sounds, it's to assemble God's people and signal his deliverance of them out of the sinful Christ-rejecting world and from among those who oppress them, both men and demons. And so the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. So this means there will be some audible sounds and, and signals that, that prompt this remarkable event. So it appears the rapture will not be a silent or 
secret event, but, but the vast majority of people on the earth may not understand the sound or its meaning. You say, well, how do you know? Well, when Paul heard the heavenly voice on the road to Damascus in Acts chapter 9, verse 7, and then he speaks of it again in Acts 22, verse 9, his companions heard the sound of a voice, but they, they did not hear uh, articulate words. They, did, they just heard a noise. They heard a sound, but it, they didn't understand its meaning. They had no idea what was going on. It may well be that the cry, that, that the cry of command, the voice, and the trumpet sounds that, that accompany the rapture will have the same effect. The entire world uh, will, will hear the heavenly sound, but have absolutely no idea what it means. Back to verse 16. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command and the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise, what? First. Not last, but first. The dead in Christ. Those who die before the Lord returns for his church will rise first. So rather than being at a disadvantage, they will be raised before the living are changed. And the point Paul is making here is that the dead in Christ are not going to be left out either of, of, of either the resurrection or the return of Jesus. Rather, they're going to experience it first. They're not going to lag behind. They're not going to be second-class citizens, not at all. Paul says, your dear loved ones who have died are all going to rise first. And this speaks of the resurrection of all church-age believers who have died. Their spirits which will come with the Lord at his return, will be united with their resurrected, glorified bodies. When the rapture occurs, every place, every grave where a child of God is buried will burst open and their resurrected, glorified bodies will come forth. Well, someone's going to say, well, now, wait a minute. <laughs> what about those who died at sea? What about those who were incinerated or, or blown to pieces? What about those who were cremated? Well, I mean, God isn't going to go, oh, man, you really, sh you really shouldn't have done that. He's not going to do that. I mean, this does not mean God will put the body's pieces back together again. Resurrection is not reconstruction. When Paul spoke about the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, he pointed out that the resurrection of the human body is like the growing of a plant from a seed. The flower is not identical to the seed that was planted, yet there is continuity from seed to plant. The dead physical body is the seed that's planted in the ground wherever it's planted. And the resurrection body is the flower that comes from that seed. So out of the physical body that is planted, a spiritual glorified body will be resurrected. Christians will receive glorified bodies just like Christ's glorified body. Boy, won't that be a blessing? Especially the older, older you get, the more you appreciate this fact. And so the Christians who have died before Christ returns, or Christ returns are first. They're not going to miss the Lord's return. They'll rise first. And what rises out of that grave is a glorified body to meet an already glorified spirit to become that eternal person in the image of Christ, like him because they see him as he is. The next thing to happen in verse 17 is the rapture of believers alive at that time. Look at verse 17. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. So living Christians, and again Paul uses the word we, because he believes he could be a part of that group. You know, we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up. And the church is caught up, just snatched away suddenly, instantaneously, as Paul said again, in the twinkling of an eye. And that's not how fast it is to blink. That's how fast it is to see light flash on the pupil. That's fast. And as we are caught up to be with the Lord, we will be translated. We will be changed. Our physical bodies, you know, weren't made for eternity. Our physical bodies cannot go to heaven. We can't go there in these bodies. So when we as living believers are raptured, our physical bodies will be transformed. We're going to receive our glorified bodies. Turn over to 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Turn there quickly, if you will. 
beginning in verse 50 through verse 53. This is what Paul writes. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a moment in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. We who are alive, who are, are left, will all of a sudden be snatched away and in the moment, in just a moment, we will be instantly changed. And as Paul said in Philippians 3.21, Christ will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. I mean, think of that. Just as a caterpillar goes through metamorphosis and emerges into a, a beautiful butterfly, our bodies will be transformed into a, a glorified body like our Lord. And it's not going to be a process. No, it'll be an instantaneous translation or transformation, again, in the twinkling of an eye. In that short amount of time, we'll be changed, rescued from the very grasp of Satan, snatched from the fallen world and, and the decaying, dying flesh, removed forever, think of this, removed forever from the very presence of sin, snatched away from the coming wrath of God. It's a rescue operation. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up, notice verse 17, together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. What does that mean? A reunion? I mean, this is a reunion of those alive and those who are already with the Lord when he returns. Those who are alive and remain until the rapture will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air and they'll join the dead in Christ who were raised first and there'll be a reunion with all who have died in Christ. So that beloved wife that went before you or that beloved husband, that beloved son or daughter, those beloved parents, grandparents, that beloved friend or neighbor who meant so much to you in this life, there's going to be a great and glorious reunion with them when we meet the Lord in the air. And this is perhaps the greatest comfort of all. There will be a reunion with our loved ones, our family and friends who have died before us in Christ. And apart from a relationship with Christ and the hope we have in Him, it is a fearful thing to grow old and, and face death in this life. It's a fearful thing. And I think from time to time of, of growing older and, and burying my family and my family burying me and my children and, and grandchildren standing around my grave. I mean, it's hard to say goodbye to those you love. I mean, one of the greatest sorrows a human heart can experience is that of bereavement, the, the passing of a friend or a loved one. But you see, it doesn't need to be something feared and hopeless because the Bible says that we'll be caught up together with them. There's going to be a, a glad and glorious reunion when we all are together with the Lord. That is providing you're a believer in Christ. Otherwise, it's very fearful. Because the Bible says it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So when Christ comes for his church, he's going to call all believers forth from the earth to meet him in the air. First, the dead in Christ will receive their resurrected glorified bodies. Then those who are alive, immediately behind them, we will be translated from the physical to the spiritual. And there's going to be a great and glorious reunion. And so verse 17 says, we will always be with the Lord. Always be with the Lord. Always. That means never, we'll never be separated from him. We will always be in his presence. The process is irreversible. I mean, all believers will be together forever in the very presence of the Lord who loved us and gave himself for us. I mean, how Jesus will gather us to himself is pretty impressive. 
But the main point is that whatever the state of the Christian, dead or alive, at the Lord's coming, they will always be with Him. Will always be with Him. And unfortunately, we have, we have grown uh, to love this world and the things of the world so much that no longer excites us. Because we're thinking about the next new toy, the next vacation, the next time off, the next this or the next that, all related to this temporal life when we should be living each and every day with one eye toward heaven knowing that Christ could come at any moment or He might take us in death to be with Him. And we should long for that. I mean, we should be looking for and longing for the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior. That's a great reward of heaven, to be with Jesus. Right, that's, what makes, that, that's what will make heaven heaven, that Jesus will be there. And death will not be able to break our unity with Jesus or with other believers in heaven. We, we shall always be with the Lord. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. And we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Man, I don't know about you. But those are such encouraging and comforting words. Do they encourage you? Do they comfort your heart? And now in verse 18, we see the result of the response that Paul was looking for. And we'll close here in just a moment. Notice verse 18. Therefore, what's it there for? Well, in light of what Paul has just told them in verses 13 through, through 17. Therefore, in light of that, encourage one another with these and so this brings us back to the main purpose of this passage, encouragement and, and comfort instead of grieving as those who have no hope. So therefore, in light of the glorious truth of Christ coming for his church, Paul says, encourage one another. Encourage one another. And there was no need for the Thessalonians to grieve or sorrow over Christian loved ones and fellow believers who had died. And the great encouragement and comfort of the believer is that Jesus is coming for his own. So we don't, we don't worry about the ones that die. We'll, we'll all be there when he comes. This is our hope. And not hope in like, man, I sure hope it happens. But hope in the New Testament is a certainty. And this hope, this certainty can be the hope of anyone who will put their faith and trust in Christ alone as the Son of God who loved them and died for them that they might be saved, and, and he's the one who rose in victory, that they might have hope. And what a tremendous hope we as believers have in Christ. But we may weep and sorrow at, at the passing of a believing friend or loved one, as we should. God gives us tears for a reason, to relieve our sorrow and grief, and our tears are, are a sign of how much the one who has passed was loved and missed. So it's not that we don't grieve as Christians. It would be abnormal not to grieve. No, we grieve. We just don't grieve like those who have no hope. So we may weep and sorrow at the passing of a loved one or a friend, but on the day of the rapture, we're going to be reunited with them. And together we're going to be with our Lord for all of eternity. You see, Christians never say goodbye. See you later, right? See you pretty soon. I'm, I'm not lost. I won't be lost. You'll know exactly where I am. And we'll be united together once again. So it's not goodbye. It's simply, we'll see you later. No wonder Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 16.22, Maranatha. Or... Come, Lord Jesus. No wonder John wrote in Revelation 22.20, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus.
May those prayers for the Lord to come have been echoed by countless Christians down through the centuries. And we will continue to pray this until the very moment Jesus returns. And as we look at all that's going on in the world, it, it should, everything that we're seeing, all, all the trials that we experience, these things should, should, one of the things they should do is wean us away from the world and our love of the world and the things of the world. And it should make us long more and more for heaven. It should make us long to see our Savior. And so we should live with one eye on heaven, praying constantly, Maranatha, come, come, Lord Jesus. Come quickly, Lord Jesus. Let's pray. Let's stand. behalf of Pastor Jim Jarrett and everyone at Calvary Chapel Reading Palisadro, we hope and pray this study you just heard will help you grow in the Word. If you have any remaining questions or comments, please call us at 530-547-4400. That's 530-547-4400. Or write to us at P.O. Box 837, Palisadro, California, 96073. You can also email us through the website at ccredding.com. Thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you. Run.